0: Good evening, everyone, and welcome to lesson two of um, this course entitled This Can Happen. I like to just call it the Mashiach course. And um, so I'd like to get straight into things. Um, based on the feedback that I've had from, uh, from some of you, um, it is very clear um, how, how important and how crucial this course is. Because as I mentioned in the, in the first lesson, at the beginning of the first lesson, this is a topic in Judaism that has been so misunderstood, misrepresented, um, and has caused so much pain and suffering as a result of that misinformation and as a result of all of that controversy that came um, that came as a result of this topic. Uh, it's not a new topic to Judaism; uh, it's it's as old as Judaism itself. And uh, the unfortunate reality is is that for three millennia at least, it has been presented and understood uh, in a way that has lent itself to a lot of misunderstanding. And so therefore it is so crucial uh, since as we learned in 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 last week's lesson, because Judaism uh, makes a very strong emphasis on Mashiach as we are going to see in today's lesson, uh, I think it's so important that as Jews we should understand what this is all about. So last week um, we focused on uh, perhaps the most tantalizing and, uh, and most relatable part of Mashiach. Who doesn't want to have a perfect world? Everyone would love to have a perfect world. If you had offered to them on a silver platter, they'll take it with two hands. No problem. They'll take a double serving of a perfect world. Right? Who is it that said that religion is the opium of the masses? If religion is the opium of the masses, Messiah is the double opium of the masses. It's an overdose of opium. Who, who doesn't want to have a promise of a perfect future? Who doesn't want to have um, a hope in, uh, in a brighter tomorrow? But here's the deal. Judaism is not opium. And anything that is removed from reality is removed from Judaism. Judaism and reality are synonymous. If something is not realistic, if something is not um, possible in the real world, Then you know it's not judaism then you know it has nothing to do with judaism it's got to do with imagination it's part of entertainment it's wonderful i'm sure people can make a a few dollars off of it i think they're all bunched together in hollywood um so if you can make some money off of selling people uh you know fake news and fake ideas and opium great that that's wonderful you know at least you're making a dollar and you're making people feel good but that's not judaism When we talk about uh, any concept in Judaism, especially from the Torah, everything in Judaism comes from the Torah and from our prophets, we're talking here about real hardcore realistic stuff. We're not talking about just a hope in a brighter future. We're talking about something that the prophets say will definitely occur. Just to put that into context, the definition of a prophet is that the prophet predicts what will happen in the future and it actually comes to pass. If anything that the prophet predicted does not come to pass, then you know that that prophet is a false prophet. You see, the concept of prophecy in Judaism, I know I'm I'm, I'm diverting a bit, but but I think this is a very important thing to uh, have in proper context in order to put Mashiach in the proper context. Prophecy is not just something that people decide to accept. The Torah has a whole chapter describing how does one define a prophet and how does one define prophecy. And uh, it's a very it's a very, uh, very, specific definition. There is, no, there is zero flexibility in that definition. And when we talk about defining a prophet, one of the ways to define that this is a real prophet is if the prophet predicts the future and it actually happens. Uh, and if he predicts a future and that did not come to pass, then you know that he is a false prophet. So when we talk about prophecy, and especially prophecy that was recorded in the Bible, in Tanakh, we're talking here about things that are actually going to come to pass. Um, Mind you, all of the prophecies about Mashiach, they do not give a definitive date of when that is going to happen. So therefore one cannot say, oh, since Mashiach hasn't come yet, and we're already two and a half thousand, three thousand years removed from that prophecy, then... (laughs) Then, then it's probably not true. And the answer is no. They, they did not give an expiration date to the prophecy. They did not give a definitive time of when it's going to actually happen. And therefore, it can still happen, and it certainly will still happen. But here's the deal. So last week, we spoke about the prophecies about Mashiach's coming there are, that, that describe the physical reality of the world, the material reality of the world in the time of redemption. No war no hunger, no poverty, no illness, no crime, no violence. Great. I mean, longevity. This is unbelievable stuff. Now, the problem that everyone could have with that is, really, that's going to happen? But the truth is, if if you look at the reality that we live in today, we've come a very long way from a thousand years ago from 100 years ago, and mind you, from 20 years ago. The world is moving in a direction where all of these prophecies seem to be something that is not out of the realm of reality. they They have all become realistic. That does not mean to say that the world we live in today is anywhere close to perfect. In fact, it's very far from perfect. And there are some things today that are worse than they were 50 years ago, even 100 years ago. We talk about morality, ethics, Some will argue and say that things are getting worse and they're not getting better. And that's true. And it's probably true in a certain context. The reason for that is Mashiach is not here yet. So last week we were not suggesting that Mashiach has already arrived. Absolutely not. What we were suggesting was that the prophecy about Mashiach and the description of the Messianic era that seems to be so far removed from reality is in fact very, very much Relatable to specifically today, which is an indication that the messianic reality is more at hand. In other words, we are getting closer to the realization of these prophecies. But today, we are going to go a step further because the truth is, last week we only spoke about half the story. There's another part to the story. When we talk about the messianic era, when we talk about a time of redemption, The prophecies and, uh, for example, the teachings of Maimonides describing Mashiach are not limited to describing utopia, to describing the perfect world that we all wish to live in, a world with no war and no illness and no no poverty, no crime. It also talks about a world in which there is wholesome religiosity, and I want to explain what I mean. The definition of Mashiach is not just that there won't be any war in the world, but it's also that there is going to be a holy temple the temple mount it's also that all of the laws that are dependent on a holy temple setting are going to be in place the sanhedrin will once again function Uh, there is going to be a king that king's name is mashiach and uh, we'll, we'll go into more detail soon about this but here comes the big question why is that an integral part an integral element of a perfect world of the Messianic era. So this is something that we are going to be dealing with today. Uh, So let's begin in text number one. Text number one, this is a direct quote from Maimonides. And this this is not prophecy, this is law. The difference between prophecy and law is that when it comes to prophecy, one can argue that prophecy can have certain interpretations. When it comes to law, there isn't much flexibility in the interpretation of law. It's what you see is what you get. So if Rambam codified the laws of Mashiach, first of all, that it will happen. This is an integral part of Jewish law. And describes in his book of law how that world will look. Then he is talking about something that is inflexible. He's talking about something that's actually going to happen the way he describes it. The King Mashiach, so first of all, ramam is telling us that we're not just looking forward to an era where there's going to be no more war and it's going to be peaceful, etc. We're talking about an era that will be ushered in by a King Mashiach. It's going to be a flesh and blood human being who's going to be in the position of no less than a king. So the King Mashiach, and, and we're going to talk about this in later lessons, the, those specifics about the King Mashiach, but it's important to point that out. The King Mashiach is destined to arise and restore the sovereignty of the house of David to its former rule. So just to point something out, we're not just talking about a human being of flesh and blood, but we're also saying which lineage he must come from. He must come from the Davidic lineage. If, you, if, if, if this person who is Mashiach cannot show direct lineage, son, father, son, father, all the way back to King David, they're disqualified from being Mashiach. No matter how pious they are, no matter how talented they are, charismatic and perfect for the job, just like a Kohen, there's only someone that comes from the, the, the family of Aaron the high priest. So, too, Mashiach is going to have to come from a very specific lineage. Again, Mashiach is not a deity, Mashiach is not a god, Mashiach is a person who comes from a defined and traceable lineage. He will build the temple and gather the dispersed of Israel. Another definitive thing that Mashiach will do, build the temple, the temple will function. He will gather the dispersed of Israel. Just like all the Jewish people lived in Israel in the times of Joshua, so too all the Jewish people will live in the land of Israel. That's actually a very interesting conversation. Are we all going to move from our homes here in El Paso, in Texas, in the United States, and fly all the way to Israel? That's an interesting discussion. But that's not the topic of discussion today. But one of the defined roles of Mashiach is that he's going to gather the Jewish people together. In his days, all the Torah's laws will be reinstated. Today, one of the definitions of exile is the fact that a large majority of Torah law is defunct, is simply not relevant. What's another defining factor of Mashiach is that in his time, in the time of redemption, all of Jewish law will be relevant. When there arises a king from the house of David who studies Torah and fulfills the mitzvot like his ancestor David, in accordance with both the written Torah and the oral Torah, and he will influence all of Israel to walk in its ways and repair its breaches, and he will fight the battles of God. So if he has accomplished all of this, he has built the holy temple in its place, he's gathered all the, Jew, all, the Jew, all the Jews to Israel, and he has influenced all the Jewish people to behave in accordance with the Torah and its mitzvahs in their entirety. At that point, he is presumed to be Mashiach. He is not confirmed to be Mashiach, but he is presumed to be Mashiach. If he does this and is successful, and he builds the temple in its place and gathers the dispersed of Israel, then he is definitely Mashiach. He will then improve the entire... So after he has done all this, now he's definitely Mashiach, and what is he going to do as a definitive Mashiach? He will then improve the entire world to serve God together, as it is written. Then I will transform the nations to a pure language that they will all call upon the name of God and serve him with one purpose. In that era, there will be no famine or war, no envy or competition. So this whole beautiful utopia that we're describing, this beautiful world that we're describing, comes only after Mashiach has has accomplished a very defined religious accomplishment, building the temple in its place, gathering all the Jewish people to the land of Israel, influencing all the Jewish people to keep the Torah and the mitzvahs in their entirety. Only then, that era, there will be no famine or war, no envy or competition, for goodness will be in abundance and all delights will be as commonplace as dust. The sole occupation of the world will be only to know God as it is written. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of God as waters cover the sea. Now, let me ask you a question. What's easier, to bring world peace or to build the temple on the temple mount? What's easier, to get rid of all illness in the world or to convince every Jew to live in the land of Israel? What's easier, to get rid of crime or to influence all the Jewish people to keep all the 613 mitzvahs in their entirety? I don't know the answer of what's easier or what's not. But if it seemed fantastical to suggest that there will be an era, that there will be no war, there will be no illness, there will be no crime, it might seem as equally fantastical to suggest that there will be an era where on the Temple Mount there will no longer be the mosque, and instead there's going to be the Jewish temple. And this is all part of the prophecy. This is all part of not just prophecy that's in Tanakh, which is good enough, but this is all part of Maimonides' code of law. In his code of law, he says that this is part of what's going to happen in the future. This is an integral part of Jewish law. Just like part of Jewish law is that six days of the week we work and on the seventh day we rest, there will come a time when Mashiach will come and he will accomplish X, Y, and Z. So there's two questions. Number one, really, can all of this really happen? But more importantly, do we really need that? Do we really need to have a temple on the Temple Mount in order for there to be no war in the world? Do we really need to have all the Jewish people observing all the Torah and mitzvahs in their entirety in order not to have crime in the world? In order that there should be no illness and, and whatever in the world? Why can't we just look forward to and hope for a time when there will be no war, no famine, without, without uh, how do you say, the fine print? Huh? We're going to have to have this perfect religious reality too. Maybe we have to update the hope that we're giving the masses. We have to update the opium, right? No, but again, we're taking that out of the equation. The sheikh is not opium. But what we really need to understand is why do the prophets and Maimonides and all of Judaism present the perfection of the era of redemption hand in hand with the wholesomeness of the religiosity that Moshiach will bring to the Jewish people. Why do they go hand in hand? What's, what's, are they two sides of the same coin, or are they really part of the same side of the same coin? What's the deal? So this is the overarching question that we are going to be addressing today. By the way, spoiler alert, we're not going to walk out of today's lesson with the full answer. We're going to get only half the answer today. And uh, I'm sorry to say you'll have to wait a full week to get the answer next week. But, so today's lesson and next week's lesson are, are pretty much part of the same lesson, but I don't want to keep you here for three hours. I only have an hour and 15 minutes of your attention today. All right. So in order to get to the crux of this issue, let's first talk about Jewish religiosity today and its relationship to Mashiach. Mashiach, is not just something we mention once a year. Mashiach is something that is so embedded within the fabric of Jewish life. It's something that every day you will mention it and hear about it and think about it multiple times a day. Let's talk about the most obvious place where Mashiach presents itself. And that is in our daily prayers. As Jews, we have an obligation to pray to God three times a day, in the morning, the afternoon, and the evening. Shachris, Mincha, and Meirif. Now these prayers are different. You know, in the morning it's much longer, in the evening it's shorter, and in the afternoon it's even shorter than that. But the one thing that is common, the common thread between all three of these prayers is that all three of them feature the Amida prayer. The prayer where we stand and we are talking directly to God which is also called Shmone Esrei because originally it had 18 blessings. Uh, Later on, um, is Rabbi cutting out any of you? What was that, Marvin? I can't hear you. You keep freezing. We can't.
1: Oh, okay. Oh, so it is happening. The sea
0: freezes and and there's... Oh, really? You know what? Yeah, I see that I have the, the, something. A lot, with... a lot. Okay, just a moment. I thought All maybe so it was if... my internet connection. No, no, no. no it's my, so it seems like it's my internet connection. Yes. Let me try something here. Uh, let me try something, let's see if this, uh, if this works better. All right, we're on a different network, so hopefully this works better. If I freeze at any point, um, I guess make some hand motions or unmute yourself and interrupt, please. I don't want to freeze that much. Okay. Um, so going back to the Amida prayer, the 18 blessings, which actually today are 19 blessings. Seven out of 19 blessings talk about Mashiach. Seven out of 19 is almost half. Almost half of the blessings that we mentioned. Oh, am I'm, I'm, I'm freezing. Okay, here's what we're going to do. Okay, so Marvin asked a great question. Um, for how long have the laws of the Torah been defunct? The answer to that is that the only era in which perhaps all the laws of the Torah were relevant was a very short era, Um, between the building of the first holy temple, which was, um, let's say, about 400 years after the Jewish people came into the land of Israel, 440 years after they came into the land of Israel. About 250 to 300 years later, uh, already large portions of the nation had been exiled. Now, Um, once a large portion of the nation had been exiled from the land of Israel, there are already some mitzvahs that became defunct. The mitzvahs of Yoival, for example, the Jubilee year, which is every 50th year, certain elements of it are are just simply not applicable uh, during such a time period. And before the building of the Holy Temple, there were certain mitzvahs that also did not really uh, begin to really function properly. So, I would say that the time period that the Jewish people had all the mitzvahs, you know, and it was possible for them to do everything is between 300 years and at most six to 700 years. Um, After that, even even after the the exile, and then they came back the second time and they built the second holy temple, a lot of mitzvahs never really functioned properly since then. Uh, So when we talk about Mashiach coming and reinstating everything, we're talking about, going back to a very original type of situation. By the way, when I say all the mitzvahs all of a sudden starting to, to function, that doesn't mean that we have to go back to an era where we ride camels and we read by candlelight. That's not that's not a defining factor of the, of the 613 mitzvahs. So, uh, what was that?
1: Yeah, no, the reason I asked the question, I'm sorry for, for stopping your train of thought, but the reason, I it's a follow-up, that it's like, okay, we don't have these laws. We can't practice everything. We, you know, a lot of these laws are defunct. And the only way we can do it is until Mashiach comes. Like, it makes me feel like he thinks, well, look what happened to the experiment. Uh, only from 300 to 700 years they could do it. And the rest of the time, they've been in exile with these minimum amount of laws. And now I, I gotta wait till I send my Mashiach down there to, you know, to make it happen. Uh, yeah.
0: You're asking a good question. Well, here I don't know if this is exactly what you're asking, but this is what I'm going to take from your question. How's that? You you let me know if this is your question. If God has 613 laws, right, that he wants us to keep, why has he not given us the ability to keep all 613 for so long?
1: Yeah, I mean, the whole experiment of 6,000 years of the planet, I mean, I understand that the Torah was given 3,300, you know, approximately. But of that amount of time, it seems like most of it, we haven't been able to do what he was hoping we could do, I guess.
0: Right. So, so in other words, what you're asking is, is it by design that we shouldn't be able to do it? Or is there some force that's forcing God not to allow us to do it? In other words, wh- what is this situation that we are living in a world where we have a Torah, we have 613 mitzvahs of the Torah, and the fact of the matter is that we can do them. And in fact, it's not something that really depends on us. It depends on something that's much larger than us. When the jewish people came back after the first exile and they rebuilt the second holy temple there were a whole host of laws that they weren't able to keep simply because they couldn't get all 12 tribes to come back it was beyond their control it wasn't like something they could do so so what's the deal does god want us to keep these laws or does he not want us to keep these laws so that's a that's a fine question in and of itself but it would seem from the way the prophecy and maimonides book of law present the concept of mishak it would seem that you know the perfect world and the ability to keep all 613 laws are interconnected and the question is why what is that connection why do we need to have the ability to observe the laws of jubilee in order to have peace in the world why do we have to have the ability of observing the law of a jewish slave and it sounds pretty crazy but the law of a jewish slave in order that there shouldn't be any illness in the world. What's, what is the connection? What, what's the deal here? And why is there any type of religious association to a perfect world? Why do we have to all be religious in order to be at peace with each other? Do we? It would seem from Rambam, yes. But but what's the deal? Anyway, all right. So getting back to the conversation and the, and the question of... Um, I'm not, not the question, but the discussion about that Mashiach is central to Jewish observance. Mashiach, uh, the, the, the belief that Mashiach will come is central to Jewish observance today. How so? In our Shemona Esrei, in our Amida prayer, seven of the 19 blessings talk about Mashiach. And what I think we'll do is let's go to text two, and it gives us all seven of these blessings. I'm going to go through it quickly, and you'll just see. How in the Amidah prayer, when we are supposed to be asking God for our needs, for sustenance, for health, for peace, what do we ask for? Mashiach. In all various different ways, we're asking for Mashiach. And we say this three times a day, which would insinuate that this is a very, very important need for all of us. We really, really need Mashiach. And it's not you can decide if you need Mashiach or not. The sages instituted the same version of prayer for all Jews. All right, so here, the second blessing. You are mighty forever, my Lord. You resurrect the dead. You are powerful to save. Resurrection of the dead is another concept of Mashiach, which we'll talk about a little later. Um, Going further down, let's skip uh, skip the entire thing. Uh, Blessed are you, Lord, who revives the dead. All right, the second blessing right away talks about a messianic issue. Seventh blessing. Oh, behold, our affliction our wage our battle. Redeem us speedily for the sake of your name. For you, God, are the mighty Redeemer. Blessed are you, Lord, Redeemer of Israel. All right, we need to have redemption. Tenth blessing, sound the great shofar for our freedom. Raise a banner to gather our exiles. Gathering the exiles, right? That's one of the things that Mashiach will do. And bring us together from the four corners of the earth into our land. Blessed are you, Lord, who gathers the dispersed of his people Israel. Eleventh blessing, restore our judges and as, as in former times. This is talking about the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin that can only function, actually you don't really need a holy temple. The, the truth is the Sanhedrin can only function in its fullest way if they are in the temple mount, if they are in the temple compound adjacent to the temple courtyard where they are, off, are offering sacrifices. So every day in the in eleventh, the I'm sorry, yeah, the eleventh blessing we say, Restore our judges as in former times and our counselors as of yore. Remove from us sorrow and sighing and reign over us, you alone, O Lord, with kindness and compassion, with righteousness and justice. Blessed are you, king who loves, justice and, uh, who loves righteousness and justice. We know that this will only happen when Mashiach will come. Fourteenth blessing. Return in mercy to Jerusalem, your city, and dwell therein as you have promised. Speedily establish therein the throne of David, your servant, and rebuild it soon in our days as an everlasting edifice. Blessed are you, Lord, who rebuilds Jerusalem. When we talk about rebuilding Jerusalem, we're not talking about putting in infrastructure and having roads and having houses and apartment buildings and high risers and all the beautiful things that are happening in Jerusalem today. That's not the Jerusalem it's talking about. That's not the rebuilding of Jerusalem it's talking about. It's talking here about the Davidic kingdom. It's talking here about restore the throne of David, your servant, whose capital city is Jerusalem. That hasn't happened yet. And that will only happen when Mashiach will come. As we said, Mashiach is going to be a king who is a descendant from King David. Fifteenth blessing. Speedily cause the seed of David, your servant, to flourish and increase his power by your salvation. For we hope for your salvation all day. Blessed are you, Lord, who causes the power of salvation to flourish. Straight up blessing. We're asking that Mashiach should come. Uh, next one. Look with favor, Lord our God, on your people Israel and pay heed to their prayer. Restore the service to your sanctuary. That's talking about the rebuilding of the Holy Temple and the restoration of the service in the Holy Temple, offering sacrifices and the incense and lighting the menorah and everything that happens in a Holy Temple. That's not going on yet. That's only going to happen when Mashiach will come. And accept with love and favor Israel's fire offerings and prayer. And may the service of your people, Israel Israel always find favor. Blessed are you, Lord, who restores his divine presence to Zion. A very transparent and clear prayer that Mashiach should come. Seven out of 19 of our daily prayers, we say three times a day, is all about Mashiach. In fact, it's an interesting thing. Uh, When the Rebbe started to speak very strongly about the need for Mashiach and the need to demand that Mashiach should come and to prepare ourselves for Mashiach, there were many religious Jews that called foul. They said, well, what's going on over here? Why are you even talking about Mashiach? Why is this an overarching issue? And the Rebbe said, I don't know why you're coming to me with questions and complaints. I mean, look at your prayer book. Every religious Jew knows that open up a prayer book. You need to have an English translation, use an English translation. What does it say over there? Seven out of 19 of your blessings when you're talking to God, you can't lie to God. Seven out of 19 of them are talking about Mashiach. And you're telling me Mashiach is not central to Judaism. You're telling me Mashiach is not necessary. Imagine you have time to speak to the king. And you were told, when you speak to the king, don't talk philosophy. Don't talk, um, don't talk fiction. You must, you have a few minutes, and at that time, you have to ask for your needs. You need groceries, you need rent, you need warmth, whatever it is. You come into the king, don't waste his time. You have to speak to him and speak truthfully. That's what's happening by the Amida prayer. You have a few minutes where you're able to talk to God, and he's willing to give you whatever you need. But you can't hakachinik. You can't just say things that you don't believe in. You can't just say things that aren't real, that aren't realistic. And what are seven of those 19 blessings that we are meant to speak to God about? About Mashiach. What's the deal? Why is Mashiach such an overarching necessity for the Jew? And most importantly, why is it such a necessity for Judaism? All right, so let's go to figure 2.1. Here in this figure, we're going to see how there's multiple... Issues in Judaism, in Jewish life, that reference to the coming of Mashiach. So, first of all, the daily prayers, as we just mentioned, meal times. Okay, <laughs> meal times. There are several references to the concept of Mashiach. First of all, I'm sure you're all familiar with the idea of washing hands, al nitiyat yadayim, before having a meal with bread. You take a cup and you wash your hand three times on the right and three times on the left. You make a blessing, al nitiyat yadayim. Why? Why do we do that? What's the idea for hygiene? For hygiene, you could just take soap and wash your hands and you're good to go. But there is this religious washing that needs to happen. And the, the reason for that religious washing is because in temple times, there was a certain uh, tax, certain tithe, it wasn't 10%, it was 2% of your produce needed to go to the Kohen. This was called Truma, which was sanctified and uh, it was, it was uh, uh flour. And only a con was allowed to eat it. And when he ate it, he needed to be in a, in a, in a, in a, in a he had to be ritually pure. If he was ritually impure, if he had gone, uh, for example, if he was at a, at, at a funeral, uh, if a relative of his had died, or for whatever reason, if he had become ritually impure, he was not allowed to partake in truma at all. Uh, in the laws of purity, ritual purity and impurity, there's also this concept that the hands themselves could become ritually impure. And therefore, before the Kohen would eat from bread, which is truma, which is uh, sanctified bread, he would have to wash his hands in a religious fashion, not in a hygienic fashion, in a religious fashion, making a blessing. And then he would eat his bread. So the sages at the time said like this, if only the Kohenim are going to be washing their hands, in order to eat their truma bread, their sanctified bread. So it's actually a very small minority of the Jewish people doing it only certain times. This is going to be forgotten very quickly. And as a result, a Kohen will come to eat, partake of this holy bread without washing their hands. So in order to preserve the sanctity of this sanctified bread, our sages, I believe it was Solomon, King Solomon instituted, A nationwide tradition that all Jews, whenever they eat any type of bread, should wash their hands in this ritual fashion, make a blessing, and only then should they eat the bread. If all Jews would do this, if this becomes an institutionalized custom and observance, the Quran will never come to make the mistake, the error of eating sanctified bread with unsanctified hands okay? Today, koanim do not eat this truma bread. They don't eat the sanctified bread. They only do so in the times of the Holy Temple. So, today, Kohanim do not eat it, and yet, every Jew has the obligation, and has the mitzvah, that before sitting down to eat a meal of bread, they wash their hands. Three times on the right, three times on the left, and they say the blessing. And the reason is, there is no other reason for it, other than because when mashiach will come and there will be a holy temple and we will once again be giving truma that 2% uh, tithe uh, 2% tax to the kohanim and it's going to be sanctified bread the kohanim are going to need to wash their hands are going to have to sanctify their hands before they partake with that bread in that bread and therefore in order to preserve the sanctity of that bread when mashiach will come today all the jewish people are washing their hands Right? So the next time that you say the blessing, know that the reason why you're saying is to prepare you and the entire Jewish nation to train us to live in a redemption reality, to live in a reality where there's a holy temple and call are eating truma bread. That's wild. So it's not just when you're praying to God you talk about Mashiach, but when you're ready to sit down and eat breakfast, lunch or supper, and you're going to have a sandwich, you're doing something that's all about the fact that Mashiach will eventually come. That's the only reason why we're doing it. All right. Um, for, before, before we uh, recite the Grace After Meals, there's a chapter which speaks about the destruction of, of Israel and destruction, destruction of Jerusalem. And we speak about the idea that we should come back. And also uh, in the prayers themselves, uh, there, there's included a prayer, Uvene Yerushalayim, which is all about the rebuilding of Jerusalem. So at the beginning of the meal and at the end of the meal, we, uh, we, talk, we, we are doing things and we are saying things that are all about the Mashiach reality, all about the Messianic reality, and all about the religious part of the Messianic reality. It's not talking about the part where there's going to be peace and no illness and no crime. No, we're talking about the religious bent, the religious element of the Mashiach reality, the Jewish calendar. In the Jewish calendar, every year, we have three weeks of the Jewish year from the 17th of Tammuz until the 9th of Av, which are three weeks dedicated to mourning the destruction of the temple, which happened over about 1,800, 1,900 years ago, and talking about the fact that eventually it will be, re- it will be rebuilt. Passover, Pesach, all Jewish people are at the Seder, right? What is one of the overarching themes with the themes of the Seder? That just like we were redeemed then, we will be redeemed in the future. Not just the final statement of the Shana Baal Yerushalayim. This is something that comes up several times in the Seder, at the very beginning of the Seder, by the Helach Ma'anyo, the very first paragraph of Magid. We say, today we are slaves, next year we'll be free, today we are here, next year we'll be in Jerusalem. Uh, at the end of Magid, in the blessing that we recite over the second cup of wine, there's a very strong uh, dedication to the concept of Mashiach and the future redemption. At the end of the Seder, during the Hallel Prayer and everything that we say then, there's a lot about Mashiach. We fill up a glass of wine for Elijah the Prophet, specifically because Elijah the Prophet is going to be the bearer of the good news that Mashiach is coming. And obviously at the end we say, Lashana Abba Yerushalayim, next year in Jerusalem. And this is the Seder. This is like you know the high time for the Jewish people. Yom Kippur, all Jewish people are in, are in the synagogue. And what do we say at the very end? What's the final send-off to all the Jews after Yom Kippur? Lashana Abba Yerushalayim, next year in Jerusalem. Let's talk about weddings, right? What is a more important time in, in, in Jewish life cycle than a wedding? One of the blessings, the final blessing, in fact, the final blessing, you know, when we're about to, con- you know, this, this marriage is about to be complete and wonderful and, and we're sanctifying the marriage. What do we quote in this blessing? A quote from Isaiah. It shall yet be heard in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, the voice of happiness and the voice of joy, the voice of a bridegroom and the voice of a bride. And this is talking about Mashiach. At the end of the chuppah, we break the glass. Why? In order to remember that our temple has been destroyed. But what do we say right afterwards? We shout mazel tov, right? The destruction of the glass, the destruction of the temple is what's leading the way for a big mazel tov. Ultimately, there will be a third holy temple, which will be, uh, w- which will be a, a perfect edifice, an everlasting edifice, etc. In death and mourning, a lot of the customs that we have involved with death and mourning emphasize the idea that we believe with perfect faith that eventually there will be the resurrection of the dead. And what is the traditional words of consolation that we say to those in mourning? We say, may God console you amongst other mourners of Zion and Jerusalem. Just like all Jewish people are mourning Zion and Jerusalem for 1,800, 1,900 years by now, and eventually they will be consoled by the fact that Zion and Jerusalem will return, Mashiach will come, so too you should be consoled that your loved ones will return back from the dead. So we've illustrated that throughout the day in our prayers, we're constantly talking about Mashiach. In our meals, we're doing things and talking about Mashiach. Our Jewish calendar, all I mean, just the yearly events that happen, many of them have a lot to do with Mashiach. Weddings and death and mourning, all of that, there's a very strong permeating theme of Mashiach. So Mashiach can't just be a hope for a better future. Mashiach has to be something that is embedded in the fabric of Jewish religion, of Torah, of mitzvahs. It's not just that, oh, we have, we have tzuris we have problems, Mashiach will eventually come, don't give up hope. It's that something about this Mashiach thing is so foundational to everything that we do that therefore everything we do has some type of... Um, some type of representation of Mashiach within it. And what's the idea here? So let's continue. Um, by the way, is, is the internet is good? Am I coming across well? No, you keep freezing. <laughs> oh, no. I, I think we just have to do the best we can. All right. So what we'll do is uh, we're going to do the best we can. Yeah. And uh, I'll be sending the recordings. I'll, res- I'll send it like on, a, on an anchor file. So that will be one long file, and uh, you'll be able to hear it if you want to go back. And I'm sorry, I I don't understand why the internet is not working well here. We will try to ensure that next time it is much better. Um, Okay, figure 2.2. So now we said how Jewish Jewish observance is so obsessed with the concept of Mashiach. Maimonides tells us, and we mentioned this last time in in the previous lesson, Maimonides teaches us that in Judaism, there are 13 principles of faith. 13 foundations, Yesoid is a foundation, 13 principles of faith. All of Jewish faith depends on the integrity of these 13 principles. What are they? So here we have a whole list. The reason we're going to read through the list and we'll read through it quickly is to see how most of them, it actually makes sense that they should be the foundation of the Jewish religion, of Jewish faith. And here we see how Mashiach is part and parcel. So, let's go through it quickly number one there is a God who is perfect in every way all other existences were were created by God and are utterly dependent upon him for their existence okay there's a God number two God is absolutely one there are no composite parts or aspects within his being three God is not physical nor does he possess any physical properties this is crucial by the way one of the biggest misinformations about Mashiach is that when people say Mashiach they think we're talking about a deity absolutely not No, God, a deity, that is not physical. And Mashiach is very physical. So they have have no connection with each other. Number four, God is timeless and eternal. Number five, it is imperative to worship God, obey His commandments, and not worship any other power or entity. Number six, God communicates to humanity through prophecy. This is very crucial because if there is no way for God to communicate with humanity, so then humanity has no relationship with God. So we have to believe that there is communication there is prophecy number seven Moshe's prophecy was true and he is the chief of all the prophets this is also very important in how we define a prophet so Moshe is defined as the original and ultimate prophet the father of all prophets number eight the Torah is of divine origin if it's not divine origin, we have nothing to do with it we have nothing to look there for so it has to be divine origin number nine In your manual, number nine is actually a repeat of number three. So what it really is, number nine is that Torah will never change. There are never going to be updates to Torah. I know if you have an iPhone or an Android, it's constantly updating, right? They always want you to recharge and to update it. Torah never gets updated. Torah is always the same. Number 10, God knows and concerns himself with everything that a person does. It's also very important because... If I don't believe that God cares about my actions, why should I seek to do mitzvahs and and, and ensure that I don't do sins, right? Number 11, God rewards those who do good and punishes those who do evil. Reward and punishment is a very integral part of of Jewish belief. Now, number 12, the belief in and anticipation of the coming of Mashiach. Number 13, the belief in the future resurrection of the dead. This is a wild concept. In other words, according to Maimonides, and this is an accepted idea today, believing in God and believing in Mashiach are equally important. Not that God and Mashiach are equal. No, there's God. And God has a Mashiach that's going to come to the world. But believing in God, believing in the eternity of God, believing in the communication between God and the Jewish people, believing in the eternity of Torah, all of that, Equally important to that is the belief that Mashiach will come. What's the deal? Now, here's, here's another point that I want to make about this Mashiach thing, which I hinted to earlier. That is that many will say, or many are under the impression, that Mashiach is the solution to a problem. Right? Many times when there's big issues, big problems, sometimes what do people say? Especially religious people, they say, no, Mashiach has to come. Only Mashiach can fix the problem, right? But here's the problem, pun intended, with that approach. The problem is that the concept of Mashiach had been communicated to the Jewish people. We had been notified that Mashiach will come long before we were experiencing problems. Text number three is a direct quote from the Torah. This is Moses speaking. Moses is telling the Jewish people, even before they went into the land of Israel, he's telling them that eventually, after you're going to go into the land of Israel, you will be exiled. God will return your exiles and he will have mercy upon you. He will return and gather you from all the nations amongst whom God has scattered you. If your outcasts will be at the ends of the heavens, from there God will gather you. From there he will take you. A very clear, clear indication. And and it's actually, it's not ambiguous. It's telling us there will come a time when you will be dispersed and there will come a time that God will bring you back. That's talking about Mashiach. And this is before we were dispersed. This is before the temple was destroyed. It was before the temple was built. God will bring you into the land your ancestors possessed and you will possess it and he will do you good and multiply you more than your ancestors and you will return and listen to the voice of God and fulfill all his commandments. Now, as Maisha Bain was telling them, I just gave you a Torah with 613 commandments. Know that there will come a time that you're going to be pushed out of the land, dispersed all over the world. You won't be able to fulfill all of his commandments and God will eventually bring you back there will be peace and prosperity, right? He will do you good and multiply you. There's going to be peace and prosperity. That's the material element of the Mashiach reality. And you will return and listen to the voice of God and fulfill all his commandments. Baish HaBainu was telling us from the very beginning that this is part of the plan. You're going to go into exile and you're going to come back from exile. Mashiach is not the response to a problem. Mashiach is the original thought process. Not only that, let's go to text 4.8. Not only is that something that Moses communicated to us right before we went into the land of Israel, but when the Torah tells us about the creation of the world, in the second verse about creation, there's already a reference to Mashiach. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was chaotic and desolate, and darkness was on the face of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God hovered upon the waters. What was the Spirit of God? Text 4b from Rabbeinu who was one of the very important um, commentators on the Torah. The Spirit of God hovered over the waters. This is the soul of Mashiach. Right away at the very beginning of creation, there was already Mashiach in the world. The meaning of this medrash is, in this passage, God is foretelling the end at the beginning. The Torah's intention is to indicate the end of time at the very beginning of time, to teach us that the ultimate purpose of God's creation of the world is the days of Mashiach. Thus, the original thought is actualized in the conclusion of the work. The point being made here is, Mashiach is not a response to a problem. In fact, Mashiach is the original intention of creation in the first place. So what is this all about? What is this enigma called Mashiach? Right. If you see in figure 2.3, the concept of redemption is central to Jewish prayer and practices. It's a central pillar of Jewish faith. It predates exile. It's not a response to our nation's displacement or our historic suffering and persecution. And most crucially, it predates the creation of the world. So what's this Mashiach all about? Mashiach is clearly not just about tikkun olam, fixing the world. Mashiach is the whole reason why the world even came into being. All right, so now, here comes, here comes the, the, the real deep stuff. This is the stuff that you come to this course for, okay? Um, and and I'm, really, I'm going to go through this, I hope, in, in, a, in a very um, thorough way, but I don't want to take up too much time. We don't have that much time. But I'd just like to say that what we're going to say now, what we're going to teach now, while it is sourced in, you know, in Torah, uh, in in, in stuff that have been taught to the Jewish people thousands of years ago. However, it was only first articulated in such a clear, relatable fashion about 250 years ago. This is, at least in my opinion, this is the most crucial um, contribution that Hasidus has made to Judaism and to Jewish thought up until the Alter Rabbi wrote the Tanya most Jews were not equipped to answer this question this question about mashiach what exactly is mashiach and why is the perfection of the messianic era uh, dependent on and intrinsically connected to the perfection of religious observance what what's the what's the what's the deal and also why is mashiach the original concept of creation. So let's go. The next three texts are coming straight from Tanya. Text number five. As is known, the sages have said that the purpose of the creation of this world is that God desired that he should have a home in the lowly world. Here's the key. The key word here is lowly world, a low world. It is also known that the days of Mashiach and especially the time of the resurrection of the dead are the fulfillment and culmination of the creation of this world and the purpose for which it was originally created. So why did God create a world? Because he desired to have a dwelling. He should have a home in the lowly world. And this is essentially what Mashiach is. Messianic era means God has a home in this world. Let's continue. Text number six. This is what the human being is all about. This is the purpose of human beings' creation and of the creation of all the worlds, both the lofty and the lowly, that God should have this home in the lowly world. What does a lofty world mean? And what does a lowly world mean? In addition, why would God want to have a home in a lowly world? And why is that Mashiach? Okay, so let's address the first question. What does lofty and lowly mean when we talk about these worlds? Let's read through text 7. Uh, And then we're going to unpack what it says here. It's a lot of text, but uh, we'll unpack this. Now, in regard to God, the distinctions of higher and lower do not apply. As God pervades all realms of existence equally. All right. So how could there be a lower world and a higher world? If for God, everything is the same. God is everywhere. But the explanation of the matter is as follows. Before the world was created, God was exclusively and singularly one. And he pervaded the entire space in which he created the world. Insofar as God is concerned, it is still the same now. Just like God was present everywhere before creation, God is present everywhere after creation as well. The change brought about by the divine act of creation relates only to those on the receiving end of the vitality and energy that God infuses into creation, which they receive via the many garments that conceal and obscure the divine radiance, as it is written, for no human can see me and live. What does it mean that no human can see God and live? If one of the foundations of our faith is that God is not physical. God is not a composite. Then of course, a person can see God. But here he says, no, no, no. No human can see me and live. Which means in death, you can see God. But what happens in death that all of a sudden you can see God? All right. So here's the deal. I see we're we're getting late in time. So here's what we're going to do. When you talk about God and God's presence, we're talking essentially about a spiritual reality, or I'd rather say a non-physical reality. A non-physical reality has no place and has no time. It's everywhere and it's nowhere. Essentially, it's everywhere. Let's take, let's take, um, let's take an example. E equals m c squared. Are you familiar with that? E equals m c squared. That's one of the big discoveries of Einstein, right? About energy and matter. So he discovered, he articulated this mathematical equation, E equals MC squared. Did this exist before Einstein articulated it? Of course, he was just discovering something that already existed. He was discovering a certain truth about the world, but Einstein revealed it. So was it always here? Yes. Did humanity know about it? No. As a result of not knowing about it, there were a lot of things they couldn't do. Once they know about it, there's a lot of things that they can do. Let's ask a different question. Let's say in one room you have 10 scientists and in another room you have 10 six-year-olds. In the room where you have 10 scientists and they are discussing E equals MC squared, does this mathematical equation exist in this room? more than it exists in the room of the six-year-olds of course not e equals mc squared exists in both rooms the reality is the same in both rooms it just happens to be that in the room with the scientists this reality is known and understood and can be developed and can change the world in the room of the six-year-olds it's not known They're completely oblivious to this mathematical equation. God, as we say in the foundations of our faith, God is one, God is singular, God is eternal. If we were able to perceive the truth of God, we would not exist as self-sustaining entities, as individual entities. We would lose our singularity we would lose our identity if we would perceive God. So when God wanted to create a world that would exist as we know it, a world which is defined by time and space, a world of diversity, a world that has inanimate, has minerals, has plants, has animals, and has human beings and billions of human beings, each one of them different from each other, And trillions upon trillions of blades of grass, each one different from another. And when you talk about the minerals in the world, without number, there's so much and so diverse. This can only happen if God is hidden, so long as we do not perceive God. If we can perceive God, we cease to exist. We're no longer a world we're no longer a reality. So who's higher, the scientists or the six-year-old kids? When you're talking about intelligence, the scientists are higher than the six-year-olds. I'll ask a better question. You have 10 scientists in a room, in the other room you have 10 meatheads, okay? 10 guys that, whatever, they, they don't understand much. And they also don't understand E equals MC squared. They don't understand it either. Who's bigger, the scientists or the meatheads in the other room? Well, it depends. If you're talking about body size, they are bigger. And the scientists are smaller. But if you're talking about an intelligence, the scientists are bigger and they are smaller. Higher and lower does not mean space In order to get closer to God, you're going to take a space shuttle or go on an elevator or sleep on the top bunk. No. When we talk about a higher world, we talk about a reality in which God is more perceived. When you talk about a lower world, you're talking about a world in which God is not perceived. That's the definition of a low world. Let's look at text 8. The fact that every creation and event appears to us as tangible and real is only because we do not apprehend and see with our physical eyes the godly energy and divine breath within each creation. But if the eye were allowed to see and apprehend the vitality and spirituality being infused into every creation by the divine utterance, if we would be able to perceive God, the physicality, materiality, and substance of that creation would be utterly invisible to us. This world would not exist. So this world is a paradox. On the one hand, God is definitely here. On the other hand, the only way this world can exist as we know it is if God could be ignored, if God is hidden and not perceived. How does God hide himself? Well, how do you hide yourself, right? You put on clothing, you want to put a blanket over yourself, whatever. No one's going to see you, right? You want to play hide and seek from your child, You run under the blanket. They can't find you. You're covered. When God created this world, he covered himself with a blanket, a second one, a third one, a lot of blankets. He really hid himself in order that we should actually exist. And when he managed to create us, that we are able to completely ignore him, that's called the lowest of all worlds. There are other worlds. We're not going to get into those details right now. We don't have the time for that. There are higher realities. When I mean higher, not higher in space, but there are realities where God is more perceived, the world where angels function, the world in which souls function, right? These are all higher worlds, worlds of greater perception. But in those worlds, there's no physical reality. And God desired to have a home to be revealed, to be perceived specifically in the low world, specifically in a world which can ignore him and as a result is actually imperfect. The only reason, in other words, why is there war? Why is there illness? Why is there poverty? You know why there is all of this? Because we're ignoring God. The fact that there is ego, the fact that there is competition, jealousy, all of that is only because... We don't perceive the truth, and this is by design. In other words, when God created the world, He designed it that it should be imperfect, in order that the imperfect world, the imperfect people in this world, should perfect it. In other language, God created a God um, brought into being a reality where God is completely ignored. In order that the ignorant people in this ignorant world should become more aware of his presence and make the entire world aware of its presence, of, of God's presence. So, Tanya continues and says, uh, let's go to uh, the, what's called uh, number seven. Uh, if you go to one, two, to read the fourth paragraph in text number seven. Clearly the purpose of the hishtalshlus of the worlds, basically the descent from level to level, the fact that God um, hid himself from in one level to another level until he came to this world, is not for the sake of the higher spiritual worlds as they constitute a descent from the radiance of the divine presence. Rather, the ultimate purpose of creation is this lowest world, specifically the physical world that is the purpose of creation. Because God wants that in this low physical world, we should be able to reveal God. What's the proof that God wanted this low physical world? It's very simple. Very simple proof from the Torah itself. When God wanted to give the Torah to the Jewish people, the Talmud tells us that when Moses went on Sinai to get the Torah, the angels called foul. They said, God, how could he give the Torah, such a beautiful, spiritual, magnificent masterpiece, how could he give it to these imperfect human beings? So God tells Moses, respond. So God said, so Moses responded to the angels and he said like this: You guys want the Torah? You guys want the Torah to remain in heaven? I have a question for you. Let's open up the Torah and see what it says there. Let's look at the Ten Commandments. What does it say in the Ten Commandments? Six days you shall work and rest on the seventh. He said, angels, you guys work? <laughs> you don't work. Fifth one, honor your father and mother. Angels, you have parents? You don't have parents. Uh, number number six: Do not murder. Angels, you can kill each other. You even have the desire to kill each other. Do not commit adultery. He looks at the angels. Really? Can you relate to that? Do not steal. You even have what to steal from each other. What Moses was illustrating to the angels was that when God created the world and He and, and He and He created the Torah, which is His wisdom and His will and His desire. What was the whole plan that there should be a world in which there should be parents, there should be work, there should be rest, there should be jealousy, there should be the desire to murder, the desire for adultery, the desire for, for thievery, and all of this. Ah, so what's emerging now is the following. God created a world. And by design, he created it that it's imperfect. Why? Not just in order to create an imperfect world, but that the imperfect human beings residing in this imperfect world should perfect the world. How? This I'm not going to explain right now, but how? Through Torah and mitzvah. mitzvahs. And when imperfect human beings are going to perfect our world through learning Torah and doing mitzvahs, then this world will reach its ultimate purpose, which is world perfection. World perfection as it will happen as a result of the coming of Mashiach. So exile, the problems of today, are not just a result of a world spiraling out of control. It's not an experiment gone wrong. In fact, it's all by design. Originally, when God created the world, he created it in a way that it could reach this situation, that it could reach a situation where millions of people are just going to kill each other over a few inches of of land, where there are going to be a select few that are going to hoard all of the wealth for themselves and keep it away from all the poor. It's by design. All of the problems, they're there in order that we should perfect them, that we should fix them specifically through the guide that God gives us in order to achieve world perfection through Mashiach. Now we can understand, or at least this, at least gives us a little bit of a perspective. Now this, this changes the entire conversation. Now it's not just about how can we fix the problems of this world. now it's about what was the purpose of creation understanding and perceiving the current reality as part of the design and that how we get out of this reality and come to the more perfect reality as also part of the entire purpose. The reason why we are in the rut, the reason why we're in the gutter, the reason why we have problems today is in order to fix them, is in order to ultimately achieve perfection. They wouldn't be here if perfection was not possible. We would not be here. If Mashiach would not be possible. Now that we have this framework, now we can go into the next lesson which is going to explain how Torah and mitzvahs are the building blocks through which we build the perfect world that we are going to experience when Mashiach will come. Any, uh, any questions? Or was I freezing that much that no one understood anything? (laughs) Again, I I apologize for that that problem and I will try to uh, fix it for next time.